This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp.com. Speaking of therapy. Yeah, speaking of therapy and all things mental health. Yes. And this was a, I mean, here here it is again where we talk about addiction. And like, it's such a co-occurring disorder. That's what we call them is co-occurring disorders Uh where you have a chemical dependency addiction along with a mental health diagnosis. Um, And yeah, this episode sponsored by BetterHelp.com. You know, they have over 4,000 licensed counselors. Um, and you could, you know, it, they have all these. It's a great platform where you can speak with a therapist in a variety of different ways. You know, with COVID going on, a lot of people aren't, you know, they might not be able to see the regular therapist. Or, you know, people I hear all the time are, ah, I was really, I had a really great therapist and then they left or they moved. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear a lot. They moved and it's like, now I got to find another one. And it's so hard. You know, you tell your story. You do. You tell your story and it's like, now I got to find another person. Hopefully I can connect it with where BetterHelp, they have this algorithm where you answer certain questions to try and pick a person that will best, you know, not a person, a therapist to best help you. Yeah. Well, therapists, counselors, um, they have all kinds of things. Obviously, addiction is a, a big, re- I mean, it's the reason why we're doing this show. Yeah. So licensed uh, drug and alcohol counselors um, are available there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. People will say like, Google, Google it. Go Google something. Googling a therapist is actually really difficult. It is. It really, and not a joke. It yeah. really is. I, you know, through my job, I had to find therapists in certain towns and it's so hard, especially small towns. It's yeah. like there's that one therapist. So if you're in the small town, there's this one therapist that you can try and see. And if all these people, one in four people are struggling with some mental health concerns and they're trying to see a therapist, all these people are going to want to see this one therapist and the likelihood of getting in to see them every, you know, people like to go weekly. Yeah. You know, things, how many things can happen in your week where you're like, oh my gosh, I need to meet with my therapist, you know, with betterhelp.com, you can talk to your therapist. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I mean, the, the, the best search engine for your mental health. Yeah. Um, so go to betterhelp.com slash DDGD. That's the name of the the network that you're on right now, Duck Duck Gray Duke, uh, the acronym, and yeah, support the podcast by supporting your mental health. Yeah, because then you can be better for yourself and your family and those around you. You can be a better worker, you can be a better husband, a better wife, a better spouse, a better partner, better parent. Yeah, whatever. You, bettering yourself is so important because you can't take care of those around you unless you're taking care of yourself at the end of the day. I tell my patients that all the time because if you get to the point where you're, you might be one of those people taking care of everyone around you and you forget about yourself and then you almost have this breakdown. So start taking care of yourself. Absolutely. Betterhelp.com slash D D G D. Enjoy the show. Who is it? Do I know him? His name's Mike French. He's a rollerblader. Mm-hmm. I don't know him. You might when you see him, because he he kind of looks like a Backstreet Boy. All right, let's. I just think keep... him him and his brother were on that uh, that uh, uh, blind date. Mm. Remember that game show? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it wasn't that. It was some MTV dating show. 
My name's Kim and I'm married to an addict alcoholic. Hi, Kim. My name is Chris and I am an addict alcoholic. I don't Hi, know why I gave you the finger guns for that. <laughs> hey. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Most of you are like, hey, I'm that guy. I'm the one hey, you're it's married me. to. Yeah, I mean, I want I want to get into it, but like we're kind of running late tonight, so. We'll just get into it at the end. Yeah, we'll do that at the end. So we're going to, we have a phone call with a former professional rollerblader, uh, Mike French. I'm excited to talk to him. He's he's been through a lot, and yeah, should should be good. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing all right, brother. How you doing? Good, good. Um, I was just telling uh, my wife how you look like a Backstreet Boy. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, not just me; my, my twin brother does too. <laughs> That's fair. That's Which Backstreet Boy? <laughs> Actually, my whole family does. Honestly, you guys are the whole crew, huh? <laughs> we have uh, two sets of multiples in my family. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, my mom has uh, twins and triplets. Holy shit! I didn't know that. Jeez, that is wild. So, dude, I'm I'm excited to to jump into this. But first, if we could do like a little bit of history. Yeah. Um. Uh. Did you guys grow up in Minnesota? Um. I was born. Me and my brother were born in Washington State, and we uh we lived there till we were seven. Then we moved to Wichita, Kansas, um, from seven to ten, and then uh, from ten to eighteen, I lived in Minnesota, and now okay. I'm back here since I've been thirty. Okay, and so did you guys pick up uh, rollerblading when you were in Minnesota or in Washington? Um, it's kind of kind of both. Um, we knew a lot of rollerbladers in Minnesota. I mean, in um, Washington, but uh, we only saw him do it when we went back to visit. And then um, when we were living out here is where we actually picked it up. Uh, one of some of our neighbors were skating in their front yard on some kinked rails and some PVC rails. And we were jocks and um, we were walking by off our school bus and they call us jocks and we call them skater punks. And <laughs> then one night they teepeed our house or I'm sorry, uh, they, they ding dong ditched our house. And, um, my mom had the triplets, uh, were just babies in their bassinets upstairs and had just gotten all three of them to sleep. And they ding dong ditched us and woke them up. And me and my brother were downstairs and we ran up and ran out the front door and caught them and had them by their hair. And we were, you know, fighting with them and like you skater punks, you know, he woke up our little brothers and sister. And so then we ended up seeing them skate the next day and we were like, let's go talk to them. Let's see what they're doing, you know, cause it looked fun. Yeah, and then they were like, "What do you guys want?" <laughs> we were like, "We want to try that," and they were like, "I guess you could try it." And they let us use a couple of pairs of skates, and been hooked ever since. Honestly, oh, wow, man, that's that's really cool. I didn't know that's how it all started. Yeah, we um, when we were we were twelve years old, or well, no, about yeah, about eleven. We got eleven or twelve. We got our first pair of skates, and then um, we got the uh, Rosie's Minneapolis's, and um. I remember they weren't really aggressive skates, but my buddy's like, we'll make them work. And then, um, we ended up, uh, when we were about 15, we were, you know, just starting high school, 14, just starting high school. And, uh, we had really wanted to buy this half pipe from the Roseville oval because they were getting rid of it. And, um, yeah, we threw a, um, a party and we made a skate video and we said for everybody that donates, uh, 20 bucks, we'll give them a skate video. And then we're going to throw a party once we buy the half pipe. So we talked to our whole school and it was a lot of rich kids. So we talked them all into donating money and then they bought a, uh, we bought a half pipe and then we gave out copies of our VHS video 
that we made and uh, had the Roseville Oval halfpipe. And our, my uh, one of my best friends down on the corner, his name was Chris Thormalen. Um, we grew up skating with him. He's a really good kid. Uh, I mean, now he's a full grown adult. But, <laughs> uh, growing up, I mean, we we were worst enemies, and we ended up being best friends. Wow, that's wild, yeah. man! And we bought a kink rail from him too, from the Oval. So we had some nostalgic uh, uh, skate park stuff over at my buddy's house. And what was messed up is like when we go cause trouble in the neighborhoods, like uh, around Halloween that first year, we had the half pipe. I remember we were rolling um, pumpkins that we took the wax out of, you know, for skating. And then we took the pumpkins over to this hill and we'd roll it down the hill into cars because we were just <laughs> bad kids. And um, <laughs> while we were doing that, we got caught and the police were looking for us while we were on bikes. I mean, we were, I'm talking, we were young kids or, you know, I don't 14, 15, whatever it was. And um, I remember we got grounded and he got grounded because our, our parents were like, when they come back, we're grounding them all, you know? And uh, he got to sit there and be grounded with the, skate park in his backyard and we'd be like oh man we'd have to walk by after school see him skate the half pipe like we wish we were grounded at his house (laughs) (laughs) that's wild man so now obviously the reason that that you're you're calling in today is for something a little less fun um yeah but that's interesting so what what city did you grow up in then um in in minnesota yeah uh, it's actually the city I'm in right now. I'm at my mom's house out in Woodbury. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's, uh, we moved in here in '92 or '93, and uh, uh, this neighborhood was, you know, empty. There was just fields, and now it's. I mean, then it became one of the fastest growing cities in America, one of the fastest growing suburbs, and now it's kind of leveled out. But it's still really nice in my mom's neighborhood. Oh wow! Yeah. So but, uh, yeah, what you're talking about the the sobriety thing. I mean, yeah. I'm just as passionate just as passionate about it as I am about rollerblading. Oh, because good. Uh, without this newfound recovery, I, I think I'd be I'd still be living in a, a life of you know being isolated and alienating. You know, just staying away from everybody that I loved. Because they say the opposite of um, addiction is connection. You know, and while I was going through my throes of addiction, I was really really just alone. You know, and that's. That's someplace I never want to be again, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I'm interested, like, um, I'm assuming like most Minnesota kids, you probably started drinking when you were in high school. Well, this rollerblading thing is kind of, I guess I don't want to blame it on that because um, skateboarding is kind of where it started for me and my brother. We were skating um, a half pipe. Uh, This guy, Mark Lesky, he used to have a half pipe out in Oakdale. And me and Derek didn't know him. He was an older guy, but our friends knew him. And so we'd go, me and my brother were in Catholic school from fourth to eighth grade. And, uh, boy, you want to talk about a miserable time. (laughs) Um, while we were in that, we would go, you know, hang out with these skateboarders or smoking cigarettes, drinking forties, you know, and we're only 10 or 11 years old, you know, and one day I want to do that, but I couldn't ride sideways. So I was just killing myself in a half pipe trying to learn how to skateboard and, you know, ended up realizing, oh, you can skate forward on these things, you know, but I got introduced to the, the alcohol kind of early, never really wanted anything to do with it. Then, um, you know, once you get good at rollerblading, you know, you get to go to competitions and got a USD, I think, and Razor skates were, well, Razor's first, but Razor sent me out to go to a couple different competitions. And we would um, also, back in the early, early years with Ben Weiss and uh, John Larson and Shane McClay and oh yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the names that you know if you're a true Minnesota skater you know who they are Jeff Howard Chris Farmer we'd all have you know our heydays back skating and 
uh, Billy Lanham, Chad Reek and I, everybody, we would be back skating it um, for a company called Legacy back in the day and um, going to demos in, in Austin, Minnesota, like Spam Jam or, oh, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> doing demos for people when we were pretty young. We'd do a state fair for third layer and, you know, kind of as, as young kids, not really knowing what we're doing, but, you know, risking our lives at something we're good at. And then afterwards, our kind of like our letting loose was getting drunk, you know, and smoking weed and the next thing you know, you don't really uh, realize you're kind of addicted to it, you know? And yeah. one of the things I remember is being 17 years old and being like, wow, we're, there are going to be a bunch of people at that party. Oh, I'm nervous. I have a lot of anxiety. And that, when I was young, I never had any anxiety, an extrovert where you put me around people and I just wouldn't shut up. And then, um, when, you know, when you add alcohol into it, all of a sudden it's like, God, I got to get drunk really quick so I can talk with people. And at 17, that's kind of a weird ailment to have, you know, or, you know, moving into 18, 19 and you're like, Whoa, I'm getting nervous. I better drink. And it was weird because during the day I could skate around thousands of people, skate in front of thousands of people. But at night when it came down to having to converse with people, I was kind of out of my element, which was weird and kind of turned to alcohol. And then of course, as the years went on, that turned into getting too drunk and blacking out. And, you know, we'd go party down in Mankato and we'd always go down there with Ben Weiss and everybody on the weekends and just just atrocious times blacking out you know some of the best memories but also some of the worst hangovers and then you um you know you look back on it and you're like i barely remember anything you know and um it turned into a lot of coke use and ecstasy and stuff like that at an early age and then um, i want to circle back real quick if you don't mind um and I'm I'm so glad that you you uh, framed that the way that you did because I have been saying it for months about how like the dynamic of these young kids who have talent, yeah. When you're as good as somebody who's older than you, it yeah. breaks down this wall, and they just assume that you can handle the same shit that they can handle. One hundred percent. When it comes to <laughs> substances, so it's like I've been saying that, and I I hope that like people think about that, like how, like uh, you know, Chamey. Yeah, yeah, really well. So he was sixteen, fifteen, sixteen, staying the night at my house, and I don't remember him asking for booze or anything, but like I remember just feeling like it was totally normal, and we were twenty five or something like that, and yeah. There's a lot of that going on in the rollerblading industry when we were coming up too. Well, yeah. I mean, having parties at my house where 25, 26 year olds are here and I'm 17, you know, my mom's out of town throwing a Halloween party, you know, and, uh, just, just trashing the house and, uh, having a hot tub party, you know, stuff like that. And one of the, one, when you brought that up, it kind of sparked a memory I had. Do you remember Lake Owen? Yeah. So I went out to Lake Owen as a visiting pro when I was, I mean, I, probably 16 years old, 17 years old. And, um, there used to be a bar called Schwamigans, I think it's called. We used to just call it Schwamis. And, um, as a visiting pro, you get paid 500 bucks a week, you know, which is pretty awesome to just go skate and hang out at the camp where you can fish and do whatever you want. Yeah. And, um, I mean, so really I look at it back now and it was kind of a, a priceless memory, but of course, you know, you're hanging out with, uh, people that are way older than you, 20, 25, 30, 35, you know, and they're going out to this bar. And then um, the, one of the memories I have is everybody thinking I can hang. And then I'm riding home on the top of a Jeep doing a hundred miles an hour, you know, where they're joking around, turning the lights off and stuff. And then I black out. I don't remember anything. I wake up the next day and this is kind of one of the funniest memories I have. But when you look back on it, going through addiction, going through sobriety, you know, recovering, you kind of think of how close you came to death. But the next morning I remember talking to Alex Boyd, who's always been a really good friend of ours. And, um, 
he said, man, I had the craziest dream last night. I said, what's that? You know, I'm waking up on the floor of a cabin, just head hurting. And he's like, I had the craziest dream that you woke up and you walked over here and you, you picked up or you just start peeing all over Jeremy's stuff. And I'm like, no, no way. You know? And he's like, yeah, man. And then I said, Hey Mike, what are you doing? And you looked at me and you said, coward. And then you went back to sleep on the floor. And I was like, no way. Good thing that was a dream, you know? And he picks up, Jeremy picks up some of his socks and squeezes them and just piss comes out. And I'm like, damn, that really happened. So then they put me in the camp, uh, in the thing with the gymnast, you know, in the, in the cabinet with the gymnast. And I was like, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. They're all going to know, you know, I got drunk and peed all over somebody's stuff. And, um, <laughs> then, they, then they took me back out to the bargain that night. And the same thing happened, except for, I guess I peed on the table where the guys were playing cards. They were up and awake. And I walked in like blacked out and just peed right on their card table. And wow. it's like, that is just miserable memories, you know? And it's like, when you're that young and you're trying to hang with these pros that are, you know, just can go out and get drunk and even drive back, you know, to the cabin. And it's like, I'm 17 years old being like, I don't think alcohol is for me, but you know, everybody drinks at all the skate trips, all that. And you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. I try and warn younger kids. Um, like, I don't know if you know Casey, but, uh, Casey oh, yeah. is kind of an, yeah, he's, he's a good dude. We went out and street skated yesterday and, uh, you know, I was talking to him and he's like, man, I really wish I was, you know, around when, I mean, I wish I was older like you guys and would have hung out with you guys when you guys were skating, you know, it'd have been awesome to be a part of like watch Ben Weiss skate to party with you guys. It looked like there was like, you know, that scene back then looked so awesome. And it's like, you know, it was great, but there's a lot of miserable times, you know, and there's a lot of addiction and a lot of us are all going through different phases of our lives right now. And, you know, some people are normies. Some people can hang with just having a couple of drinks and, some of us are going to be fighting addiction for the rest of our lives, you know? Yeah. Well, and like skate videos, you think about like, um, uh, uh, the, like the FOR videos and like hyphen, uh-huh. like all of these videos that were, um, glorifying this kind of party thing. So even if you yeah. were in a small town, you started yeah. like, cause I remember watching skate videos and because we were seeing that shit, Plus jackass and all that stuff was going on. <laughs> yeah, bum fights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were, we just like thought that that's what you did. If you skate, you must smoke weed. So like, right, we, and you I'm, must drink alcohol. Totally. Yeah, it's 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 wild to think like something that has so many good memories attached to it. Like was really the beginning. Uh, well, do you do you have addiction in your family? Like, was there anything before you guys? Yeah. My dad, horrible addict. I mean, um, we don't really talk much with him now because there's a lot of mental illness involved with it. Uh, like a bipolar schizophrenic. Okay. And so, um, you know, we never knew he was self-medicating, but it was with alcohol, you know, and my mom always kept us away from him kind of being like, yeah, no, you don't need to be around your dad. And we were like, fuck you. We're going to be around our dad anyway. You know? And then we didn't find out till we were about 30 years old. We went and stayed with him for a couple of months and that was just, Worst experience ever, but, um, but just because, you know, they, the doctors messed with his meds and it ended up really spiraling out of control because he thought people were like listening into his conversations and it, you know what I mean? It's uh yeah. mental illness is a son of a bitch. And especially when it's with ones you love and, uh, you know, unfortunately our addiction too, you know, we were just trying to party and get fucked up with people we didn't even know, you know, and cause we just moved to Washington for six months, but, um, the rollerblade scene was really good out there. Uh, Dave Hill and, a lot of those guys were fun to skate with, you know, and Eric Univer and just a bunch of Kellen would come out every once in a while. I don't know if you oh, know okay. Kellen. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good dude. Yeah. Really good dude. And, um, 
But, you know, the one thing that I look back on, even though uh, addiction kind of was a stigma that goes along with rollerblading for me when I think back on it, um, no matter where I went, it was also the one thing that saved me from a terrible life, you know? Um, when I would get in, like in Arizona, that was, in Arizona, that was like the worst. Because um, you got, we lived at ASU, you know, right in Tempe. Oh. We'd be partying with J.B. Snyder, partying with, you know, just the craziest crew of people, you know, Dustin Latimer, stuff like that. And, um, you get messed up the whole time, but at the same time, the next day, it's like, all right, time to rollerblade, you know? And if if it weren't for rollerblading, I'd probably, I don't even know. (laughs) I don't know where I'd be. Yeah. It is weird to think like, um, but I mean, that's another thing I've, I've been saying a lot too, is like, people don't, people don't realize like how Arizona is like, the most extremes on both sides. Yeah. Like there's like the ultra conservative, never touch substances, some of the best treatment facilities in the country, but uh-huh. then on the opposite end, some of the worst addiction. And like you were saying, ASU, I mean, is notorious for being like one of the biggest party colleges in, in the United States. Yeah. No, ASU is ridiculous. Pool parties every weekend, stuff like that. But I mean, people's lives are being ruined with DUIs everywhere, you know, and I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, like, um, even Washington state. So they put through the, um, you know, you can smoke recreationally there, you know, a while ago. And me and my brother were just talking about this, but what's crazy is, you know, they can also give you a DUI for having weed in your system, even though it's legal, you know, weed stays in your system for up to 30 days, but say you nick a car while you're driving. Cause you're say inattentively driving, you know, Oh wow. you, you hit a car, you know, the cops can be like, eh, we think it was a DUI, you know, test you, find out you have weed in your system and give you a, a DUI just even, and it could have been 10 days since you smoked last, you know? And I mean, it's just kind of a, a double-edged sword, you know, and ASU, I don't know how many people, like my brother got his DUI there, you know, there's, you just see that everywhere. And these young kids are just totaling, you know, the new car mom and dad just bought them, you know? And I mean, there's a lot of that out there, but then at the same time, what's weird is I never really got into too hard of drugs while I was in Arizona. I mean, cocaine and stuff like that. And then when I got out back here to Minnesota is when the real hard drugs hit, you know, and, and started being around people that were no bueno. And, you know, it, one thing that drives me nuts thinking about it is no matter where you go, there you are. And it just depends on where you're at in your addiction. You'll find it, you know? Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. you see people that really good people going through, you know, it might, they might, it might just be alcohol for one person, you know, and then it might be gambling for another person or it might be, you just see all types. And I didn't really realize that until I went to treatment. And, um, I mean, I, I noticed it when I went to jail, but in jail, I was more concerned about getting out of jail than I was kind of trying to find my sobriety and yeah. start working on my recovery, you know? And when I went to treatment, I went to RS Eden out here in uh, Minneapolis, which is one of the hardest treatment facilities in the state. And, um, you know, you don't really realize what people are going through until you become vulnerable and you start talking about what's really, you know, getting to the root of problems, what that cause addiction because really um, drug use and alcohol use are really just the way we cope with the things that are bothering us, you know? Yeah. And well, um, here, let's go back a little bit and go yeah, back to, cause you kind of skimmed over being in jail. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> you gotta start, I got horrible ADHD. Chris is the same way. Yeah. yeah. So when you went to jail, was that like your rock bottom then or, um, yeah, no, that was it. Yeah, that was that was my rock okay. bottom. That was that was kind of um, the straw that broke the camel's back. So, so what happened was is um, like I had um, some relationship issues, 
Uh, I don't really want to get into it on pu- in public, you know, as far as what happened and um, some things happened in the throes of addiction, like um, some relationship issues, but um, some other issues that happened that legally I can't talk about. Uh, but um, I have court tomorrow, actually, it's sentencing to find out if I go to prison or if I'm just going on probation, which is kind of weird that it happens to be tomorrow and wow. we're having this podcast talk tonight. But um, so 16 months ago, I was caught. Um, I used to sell drugs quite a bit. And um, I was when you when you say when you uh, get a great job, but you're a skater and uh, I'm talking back. Well, let's look back here like 15 years ago. You're traveling around going on different skate tours, things like that, or just go leaving the town for the weekend to go on a skate trip. You just quit your job because you'll find another one when you get back into town, yeah. you know, and um, I was working at good places like monster.com, um, Lenovo, uh, IBM, places like that, you know, really good jobs because I've been a salesman my whole life. And then you start thinking, okay, well, you know, what can I do? What can I do? Well, what's always going to be here when I get back, you know? And so I start selling drugs and, um, one of the hardest parts about it is at the time you think, Oh, you know, everywhere you look in the media, you know, it's, it's kind of glorifying it. And it's, uh, it's something in the skate industry. Everybody comes to town. Hey, you know, we need some weed, even people that were against selling drugs or doing drugs when they had a skate person come to town, that person, like say Frankie looking for a bag of weed, you know what I mean? And I try to throw his name out there, but that happened all the time in the industry. And, you know, I'd be the one there, you know, sometimes that they would call. And anyways, it became kind of recession proof. And, um, you know, as far as what was going on in my life, I thought that that was something that I could always kind of turn to. And man, if anybody that knows me really well knows that whatever they needed, I would try and get, you know, and it was, it was really bad for me because I ended up playing this role, um, as like more of the go-to guy for that or a place to go party, you know, and, um, even in Arizona. And then when I moved back here, unfortunately that carried on with me and, um, 16 months ago, I got caught, um, in Wisconsin with, uh, quite a bit of drugs and, um, ended up going to jail for six months. And that was my rock bottom because I disconnected from the entire skate world. I disconnected from my entire family. I wasn't even talking to my twin brother. Uh, my life became something where the healing had to start. You know, I had to start mending all the relationships that I decided to just shit on, you know, and uh, whether it would be just disconnecting from people or, you know, people asking me how I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Why are you even asking, you know, just having an attitude with people when I knew damn well that my life was fucked up and upside down, you know, but after unhealthy relationship to unhealthy relationship with women and then, you know, coming to grips with being in jail, not having anybody, you know, and then I started getting a hold of my brother and my brother's, you know, willing to help me any way he could. And, then I started trying to my, see the thing was, is I got locked up six days before my daughter came to town. My daughter lives in Arizona oh. and, um, yeah, so she's uh, 11 years old now. And, um, I had her till she was six and she was living out here with me in Minnesota. And then her mom came and, and basically regained custody. And, um, I had lost custody because I had, you know, I was living at my mom's house and her, her side of the family was ultra rich and she could provide that kind of atmosphere of, Hey, I have my own house. I have all these things. And I was kind of trying to put my life together back then. And I wasn't, uh, going through too bad of addiction then, but, uh, that seriously set me into a kind of a spiral when I lost my daughter. And, um, when she went back to Arizona, I I ended up, uh, having my son four years ago, four and a half years ago. So he was born on the, the 16th of July, uh, 2016. And, um, so anyways, uh, just to get back to that, uh, she was about to come here and she was going to be here in six days and I got busted selling drugs and, um, oh. went, went to jail and, um, it's something where, you know, I had to 
basically go through, I don't know if you've done, have you done the 12 steps for AA or any of that kind of stuff? I'm familiar with them. I have a weird relationship with the 12 steps. Me too. (laughs) You explain explain your weird relationship first. So for me, like, um, because I, I mean, and it's great that you brought up like the, the mental health stuff because what I've found is that mental health has so much to do with addiction in most cases, Uh, whether it's trauma or um, an unknown behavioral disorder, like massive depression, like there's these things, these underlying things. And it's something that I always kind of knew about myself. So while I was in treatment learning about the 12 steps, I just kept wanting to know more about mental health and like why your brain thinks that you need alcohol to survive or substance to survive. And so I went down this like rabbit hole of learning how your brain functions and, and how you, because, and I don't know how much you know about that, but like, uh, have you heard of the midbrain? Huh? So basically humans were born with this basic instincts, these, um, these things that we need primitive. to, yeah, yeah. Primitive things. And your brain needed a way to make you want to do these things to survive. Right. And so that's where dopamine comes in. Yep. So when you introduce substance, it doubles the amount of dopamine. And right. so your, your midbrain normally talks. So it's, it's a three part thing. Part one talks to part two, and then part three is the action taking. Right. So there's the instinct, there's thinking about it, and then there's taking action. Right. When us addicts are in it for long enough, the midbrain skips that second step and then just goes right to action. So like <laughs> there's times when you're like, I didn't even want to smoke, but I right. like just started smoking. Like 100%. It's because you carved this pathway in yep. your brain. And so you literally, your brain literally thinks that you need it to survive on a right. primitive level. Like not it, metaphorically, like it's just what your body thinks you, it thinks that dopamine is associated with survival. It's more than just right. a good time. Like it literally thinks that you need that. To survive. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like. No, that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense. The science aspect of it. Yeah. So I did a lot. I went to a lot of NA meetings. I didn't like the AA meetings so much. So really, they're pretty clicky. Uh, being a you know a drug addict, going to an an AA meeting for me was like somebody kill me. These people are looking at me crazy. You know, you get up there and you say anything about um, substance abuse. You know, if it's not alcohol related, they almost <laughs> you know <laughs> like they look at you like a vampire in the daylight. You know, get yeah. out of here. And it was kind of well, kind of weird. But um, going I'm not, to, a, I'm not a religious guy either, and right. NA meetings we're more like-minded in that respect most of the time. Right. So I, I, I mean, gravitated um, towards those guys. I went to, um, like I said, RS Eden, which is actually a behavioral modification uh, in a therapeutic community is what they call it. Oh, wow. Which is kind of a fancy way to say, Hey, we, we figure out what's causing you to do drugs and we fix it. <laughs> but, okay. um, you know, it's not like a 30 day spin drive where, you just go in and, you know, you get sober and they're like, all right, good luck with the world. We'll see what happens. You know, see you, see you in 90 days, you know? And, um, I didn't go there cause it was court ordered. I went there because my brother had gone out of his way when we had our relationship issues. Um, 
he said, you know what? I want to quit doing drugs. I want to quit partying. I want to grow up and be a dad. And he went and checked himself into treatment. And, um, when he checked himself into treatment, he kept trying to get me to go into treatment. And that's kind of the part I was talking about when I was just blowing off my loved ones, you know, like, nah, nah, I'm not ready for that. That's for quitters, you know? And then I end up going through my rock bottom, like I was telling her and, you know, and, um, that, uh, ended up being, um, kind of the time where I was sitting in jail thinking about it, boy, being like, boy, I'd sure like to be in treatment right now, rather than Polk County, Wisconsin jail. And, um, you know, after six months of dealing with, I mean, there's a lot of meth mutants in there and there's a lot of people that, you know, you can tell that they're never going to ever want to kick the drug and, or never want to get done. Like, I mean, there's a lot of DUI guys in there that are just like, man, if I would have just been driving my other car, I wouldn't be in here. There's even a guy who was in there for fucking a deer, um, too close to the road, you know? And, um, it's like, (laughs) Wisconsin's weird. Wisconsin's really weird. And, um, have you not fucked a deer before? (laughs) <laughs> well, when I did it, it was 30 feet away from the road. So it was completely <laughs> legal, completely legal. But, uh, you know, you've got to, what was weird is they all thought I was a cop because I had all my keys. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It was, they, they thought I was 60 days in, which is another weird thing to be accused of. And, That's you know, it's like, dude, yeah, I've been here for six months. What are you talking about? And, um, then, uh, getting, getting out and being like, you know, judge, I'd like to go to treatment. And they're like, really? After being in jail that long? It's like, yeah, that's actually what I'd like to do. And so they released me to go to treatment after I paid bail. And I went to treatment and, you know, I get to treatment thinking it's going to be 30 days. And they let me, you know, my brother's tricking me into it. Yes. Yeah, some people get through it real fast. 60 days, 30, 60 days. You'll be out of here. I'm like, cool. That's sweet. I can do that. I just did six months in jail, you know, and I, I get there and I'm like, all right, you know, hitting it head on. And, then they start getting you to deal with feelings again, you know, and in jail, you just had to act tough and people left you alone, you know, and then, you know, you get to treatment and they're like, you see people crying because they're talking about their relationship with their father or, you know, just weird, you know, being molested, things like that. And you're like, yeah. holy shit, these people are really dealing with their, their feelings. And then, you know, you start dealing with them a little bit, but still being cautious. And then finally full blown, you're like, screw it, dude. If I'm going to be here, I'm going to make it work, you know? And I, but they make you write something called an autobiography, oh, yeah. which is basically everything that's ever happened in your life that had to do with drugs, alcohol, or trauma. And you've got to, you know, you can't do it in a glorifying manner. You can't talk about, you know, and so it really makes you deal with a lot of these things that, that you've done in your life, or it's kind of, and when you look at it, you're basically doing the 12 steps. It's kind of your inventory. If you know what that step is, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, it's kind of in a, in a way of, like, hey, we're just getting all this shit out of our, you know, when you hold the secret, that's kind of what you, what'll keep you sick, you know? So when you hold these things that you've done um, to people or things that have been done to you and you hold those secrets, that's another reason to use when you get out, you know? So they try and deal with these things head on and you see a lot of people going through it and then there's a lot of people that are just doing it to get out of jail or get out of prison. Yeah. And I was, I was doing it because I want to get better, you know? And um, things have gotten significantly better for me. And um, it was, it was a, like I said, a program that was supposed to last um, they say about 90 to 120 days. Um, and I just graduated last month. So if you do the math on that, it was about an 11 month program for me. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I went there November 5th and just graduated actually at the beginning of October. So, I mean, just about 11 months. Dude, that's amazing. There's a lot of people <laughs> that give work. up, man. Well, and I mean, believe me, it's, it's an everyday fight. You know, I, I'll have memories of just using or selling drugs or things that I've done in the past. And, um, even just my Adderall, I don't know if you've ever, if you've actually been diagnosed with ADHD or not, but, um, that's another huge stigma is that 
like when you're 12 years old and a doctor's like, here's what you need. It's 30 milligram Adderalls and that's going to help you focus. And so I'm taking speed, you know, I mean, yeah. before that, um, they would give you prescription pills. Like when, when, when you're kind of a Guinea pig, um, I mean, I was on Dexedrine, Ritalin, um, all sorts of these pills that you couldn't even imagine taking it that young of an age or now looking back on it, it's like, Holy shit. No wonder I had insomnia at 11, you know? Oh, wow. And, um, if I wouldn't have found skating, I'd, I probably would have just been a doped out weirdo, you know, causing trouble. But, um, you know, I don't take Adderall anymore. And, um, the reason why is because at this treatment facility, they actually kind of taught you a lot about what causes, um, ADHD. And I don't know if you've ever gotten into the study of that, but they, the nickname for it kind of in the scientific world is kind of a attunement attachment disorder. And, um, it's really intriguing if you get into it, but yeah, that's um, interesting. I kind of taught myself how to, how to read again, which um, was crazy because I could only read when I was on pills, you know, and um, otherwise my mind goes 150,000 different places while I'm um, like, while I'm reading, you know, I'll read through a page and be like, damn, what did I just read? I have yeah. to reread it oh, again. Yeah, man. Yeah. So um, now, I mean, after going through a ton of different therapy and Derek, I'm on the phone. Dude, Jesus. My brother's like, dude, dude, what are you doing, bro? <laughs> I've been telling him I got to do this all day, and he's just, he's just trying to be a pain in my ass. We're, we're at my mom's house having my last supper in case I go to prison tomorrow. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, but um, what I was doing is uh, like, like what I was explaining about before Derek walked out and really interrupted me. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've uh, I've kind of gotten to the point where with treatment and with everything, I'm just 100% substance free. I even quit smoking cigarettes, if you can believe that. Um, for after smoking for 25 years, which is kind of crazy to me because I never yeah. thought I'd be able to quit, but, uh, I want to do this thing. The rest, I spent the first half of my life trying to kill myself. I feel like, and now I'm trying to live, you know, and I think that's the best thing I can try and teach to any young kids period is that you don't have to try and kill yourself all the time. You can just keep that with skating, you know, if, yeah, <laughs> if that's your thing yeah, or skateboarding. Man, that's risky enough for sure. I'm, yeah, chewing, and then, I'm, I'm chewing nicotine gum right now. I, <laughs> you know what? I quit cold turkey. But I, so here's what happened to me. I got out of treatment grad, or was just about to graduate. And, um, my judge has, he has kind of a bone to pick with me because, um, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And, um, he still, for some reason, wanted to lock me up. So I'd been sober for 14 months and I went to court and I went to go sign a deal, um, saying that, you know, I would, I would basically, you know, um, plead guilty to the two charges. And that he would, um, you know, he's like, well, we'll just give you probation. You won't see the inside of a jail cell. You'll never see the inside of a prison cell. As long as you stay, keep your nose clean, you know, basically three years of probation. Well, the DA is okay with that. The district attorney, we go into court and um, the judge is like, you know, I still have the right to revoke your bond and throw you in jail, right? I said, no, I had no idea. My lawyer didn't talk to me about that. He said, yeah, I have the right to do that. I'm going to do that. So he revoked my bond and threw me in jail after being clean for 14 months. And, oh um, God. yeah, so I, I was supposed to be in there for 60 days, but, um, this treatment facility, my brother, my mom, everybody wrote letters, you know, character letters just saying, Hey, look, he's doing what he's supposed to. Even the DA said, Hey, this is kind of what we encourage is people to do the right thing. And, um, this guy's done everything he's supposed to, even after he got out of jail, he checked himself into treatment. And, uh, this is kind of what the state asks offenders to do. And, um, if he hasn't even had one, one issue, why are we locking him up? He's like, well, that's just what we're doing. And then, you know, I went to jail, but he ended up having to let me out six days later because, um, 
my mom wrote a really moving letter saying that uh, I would be released into her custody. <laughs> so, hey. Here I am at 37 years old getting released into Sheriff Donna's custody, my mom. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nicest lady in the world. But um, well, I'll tell you the, the truth, the, it's, it's been it's pretty humiliating, but I mean, I try and practice humility every day. So <laughs> The judicial system still has... There's a stigma. Yeah, yeah. the stigma because only 5% of us make it without relapsing. Well, and that's what I've been told is actually it's even less than that when it comes down to like methamphetamines and things like that. Oh, wow. So, and that, that was kind of what I was involved with. And, um, as much as I hate to admit that, you know what I mean? It was something that changed my life forever because here I am this pretty boy from Woodbury, you know, that, you know, could sell anything. I could sell, like I always told people I could sell, you know, pops, uh, uh, ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves or <laughs> bubble gum to a lockjaw patient, you know, and here I am running around, you know, selling meth. And, um, it's something that really fucked my life up. And, um, now looking at it head on, I try and help people that are dealing with that because it's a huge secret people will hold, you know, they won't tell people that what their drug of choice is. There's people I know that are still addicted to pain pills. And, you know, I went through all that. And, um, that's one of the parts I kind of skipped is that when I was in Arizona, I was, you know, kind of at my peak of being, um, you know, a really good rollerblader, having all my shit together, being on MTV with my brother, you know, everything looked like it was going amazing when we did the room Raiders, uh, room Raiders, that's what it was called. Yeah, we did the Room Raiders episode. Everything was going great, but behind the scenes, nobody knew we knew we were selling coke to the cameraman, you know. And the other thing is, like, I sprained my ankle and I I got two blood clots in my left leg, and um, all because of a defective pair of Dominic Sagona skates. The the clasp would just unbuckle. Oh wow! And I'm I'm with Shane McClay, my brother. We're filming. And, um, I go to do a misfit on a kink rail and, uh, my, I land on my boot weird and the fucking strap opens up and I just sit on it in the hurdler strain it's called and, um, sprain my ankle. Next thing you know, I got two blood clots and in Arizona, I kept going to the doctor and they kept telling me, Oh, there's nothing wrong with it. Just take more pain pills. Oh, here's more pain pills. Just take these. You'll be fine. It's not even broken. It's not, it's just a sprain. And I'm like, no, there's something up in my calf. You know, it's something It's way higher. It's something up there. They're like, no, 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 just you're fine. You know? So I'm thinking, Oh, I'm fine. So new year's comes around. I think that was actually new year's day. I think when it happened and, um, you know, partying with everybody and I'm just like, dude, this is really bad. And, um, about a week later, I ended up flying to Minnesota to get medical help because um, Arizona's doctors, every, I mean, their hospitals were just not taking me seriously. And then I came to Woodbury, went right across the street to the uh, Alina Healthcare. And my family doctor from when I was just a kid was like, yeah, you've got two blood clots. So I ended up, I can't you know, believe you took a flame, uh, plane ride. That That's so yeah, dangerous. Well, that's the other thing. He said, I don't know if it was because of... You know, because I told him, hey, man, for the last week, I've been sitting with a pillow under my leg, couldn't even move, you know. Mm. He's like, I don't know if it's because of that or because you were 3,000 feet up in the air, you know, 30,000 feet, whatever it is, you know, and the elevation. So he said a number of things could have caused this blood clot and um, but or the two blood clots. But if it got dislodged, you know, that's how you get a. Uh, that's what I was going to say. You're lucky during that period of time it did, you didn't move the wrong way and it did dislodge and go to your lung right, or your heart. Uh, what or do they call that? Uh, p- uh, pulmonary um, embolism. Yeah, pulmonary. I can't even say it. That's <laughs> pulmonary the, it's embolism. It's almost like a silent killer because right. It, yeah, you never yeah. know what it is. Yep. Yep. I was gonna ask but, a yeah, question. I was gonna go back because I know when Chris was in treatment, he would like people that also sell drugs. They also get addicted to the light, like the high you get from selling drugs. Did you feel like that was another one of your addictions? Uh, you know. No, nah, that's a myth. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fast life is. 
I mean, that's what you see in the music videos. That's what you see in the media, you know, like fast cars, beautiful women, you know, like flashy lights, all that. I mean, there's, and see, here's the thing, no matter what your life is going to become unmanageable if you're doing the drugs or if you're selling the drugs, because everybody else's life is going to become unmanageable, you know, and easy come, easy go. Everything I've ever had. I mean, we got to a point in Arizona, we were living in a 6,000 square foot house in a mansion, you know, that we were renting out monthly. That was absolutely amazing. I mean, but it also, we were all, everybody was high there, you know, whether, whatever their drug was, everybody had a different drug they were on. And, you know, at the time people just stopped by. None of those people were our friends. Nobody was, you know, everybody was just a drug zombie. And it, it, to other people that would come visit, they'd be like, dude, you guys live the life. But little did they know we were just miserable, you know? And, um, when, when it comes down to the money and the drugs and the cars and all that kind of stuff, you do get addicted to it because, Oh, you've got a bill to pay. Oh, no problem. All you got to do is make a couple of stops, a couple of drops and you're fine, you know? And then, um, when you're sitting there in treatment with the zero dollars and they get, they get you, um, something called general assistance because you're not allowed to work. You're basically a vulnerable adult. It's really humbling, you know? And, um, you sit there and look back on it like, (laughs) man, if I wanted a new pair of shoes, I'd just stop and buy them. If I wanted this, I'd just go stop and get it, you know? And you're sitting there like, boy, I've got a 30 days with a hundred bucks. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. But then you hear all these people talking about, I get this. So when I'm out there, I got that. And it's like, you know, we're all the same in here. Nobody's, you know, nobody's rich. Everybody's mm-hmm. fucking shit broke. And, but yeah, you, I mean, here's the weirdest part. So, um, it's through all my addictions, um, the craziest one I've ever had would be actually what we just talked about. I mean, the, the flashy lights and the, the fast life. And, um, I have dreams about it, you know, um, when you go to sleep, like in, even in treatment or in jail, you know, you have dreams of that and then you wake up and you're like, shit, I'm back in treatment, you know, or, oh, yeah. I'm back in jail. And that's your kind of your mind kind of unwiring those, those like the, the grooves you were talking about that you're, you kind of dig out in your brain, you know, yeah. those impulses. And, um, it's kind of weird because your brain eventually just rewires itself. And I never thought I'd get to the point where I'm able to sit down with my family again and have a, a nice dinner and actually talk with them like a normal person. Because I, when I was in the, the worst parts of my addictions, it was everybody else's fault. You know, everything that ever happened in my life, I'd blame it on somebody else or this is why this happened, or this is why that happened, or this is why this person doesn't like me, you know? And then here I am right now, <laughs> my last supper with my family before my sentencing tomorrow, which I should be fine. I should just go in and get the two year probation, um, which I'll get transferred over to Hennepin County and everything should be fine. But I want to be free so I can help other addicts. But even if I do go to jail, I'm going to spend my time trying to help people get sober, even though I'm (laughs) in the worst place possible. I have to look at this thing positively, you know? Well, that's great, dude. And I mean, when I, when I was in treatment, every single night that I was in there, I had a dream about using like, yeah, yeah, without fail. So I, I relate that to crazy? that big time. Yeah, it's it's so wild. Like, um, have have you heard of Euphoric Recall? Uh no. So if um, like an, an example would be like um, if you get into a car and like a car that you used to be in and accidentally find drugs in there, just uh-huh. seeing it. Or like going to spots that you used to get high at. Yep. The that muscle memory can activate, uh-huh. and you it's like getting a miniature buzz for like. Yeah, it happens every day to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> every yeah. day. So that's what that is. Is like your muscle memory goes. Oh, remember? 
and then remember yep. and then it yeah, kind of sends you in. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> yeah. crazy, man. Yeah, yeah, it's got a funny sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Cuz yeah. uh I mean, I have to recall a lot of the bad decisions I made, but what's crazy is every time I put on a pair of skates, it, I I mean, a million memories go through my head. Some of the best times ever, some of the worst times ever, but you know, it's just like anything else. It's like, what do you do with those memories or how do you process those memories, you know? And, um, a lot of the times talking about it just helps. And I, I think that's the worst part about being addict or being when you're actually in active addiction is not talking to anybody about anything. You're processing everything by yourself with a kind of a fucked up mind, you know? Absolutely. And, um, uh, the craziest thing you said is having dreams every night you're in jail. I don't know how long you were in jail for. I was in there for six months and, um, here's the weird part is that every night you go to bed, you know, every 30 minutes or every 45 minutes, depending on what kind of jail you're in, you know, the, the guards walk around slamming the doors like assholes because they want to make sure nobody gets a good night's sleep and they're oh, doing yeah, their yeah. rounds, you know? And, um, so that makes for like six to eight different dreams throughout your entire night. Cause you're waking up every time they come through, if you're a light sleeper, like I am. So, I mean, I'm talking, I've had thousands of drug using dreams or thousands of, you know, different women dreams, you know? yeah. <laughs> none of them, none of them good. Cause then you wake up in an orange jumpsuit making you line up against the wall or, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, man, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for what happened to me 16 months ago because of who I am today. But I also, if I can help anybody try and avoid going through what I've gone through to get here, I would definitely spend most of my time doing that if I could. So that's yeah. why I'm going to be a peer recovery coach and looking into getting certified for that after this whole ordeal tomorrow, but we'll see what happens. And, uh, my whole family's coming to back me at court and, you know, trying to help the judge look at me as, uh, not just another number, which is 95% of the addicts they're going to reoffend or reuse, you know, or start, you know, reoffend or relapse. Yeah. But as that made possible 5% that has been doing nothing but good and, We'll continue to do good and uh, fight with addiction every day. And, you know, it's a losing battle because every day from our treatment facility, we see a news report of somebody who got into, man, if I could tell you, it sucks so bad. The friends that we've lost just since I started going to recovery, I lost a friend while I was in treatment. One of my best friends, a tattoo artist, his name is Ben McStalker. And, um, you know, he died of an overdose while we were in in treatment. And then um, one of our really young friends, he was 19 years old. Nobody really knows what happened, but something happened where the cops were coming after him and he decided to shoot himself. And, uh, he was only 20 years old when he died. And, um, you know, seeing him in an open casket and stuff, you really start to see this addiction. Like there's no winning, you know, there's really no winning. The only thing you can do is fight it every day and hope you can get more people to see the light that getting fucked up isn't the way to do it. And, um, you know, I try and talk to as many people as I can about addiction, but there's a lot of people that, just love to use it as a, you know, a way to cope with the, whatever happened to them in their life. Yeah. Well, it's and it's interesting in the world, like the rollerblading community, like the more that I try to reach out to people, like uh-huh. it's, it's so weird to think that like asking someone to travel across the country just to go to a skate contest, uh-huh. no problem. Asking somebody <laughs> to talk about addiction completely closed off like it's so wild the the shit that we used to do yeah but when it comes to like this you know this thing that's super important people are really closed off to it and 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 here's the thing while i was using or while i was not really using well i guess no matter what it was active addiction but uh, whether i was aware of my my addiction or not 
that's the last thing you want to talk about. And I completely get that because nobody wants to think about what's really going on while they're just, I mean, until you realize you have a problem or until you hit that rock bottom, you don't realize that that's a fight you, you, you know, you're, you're going to have to take head on at some point and whether you're going to lose, or you're going to win when I would see people talk about it, or it's like almost like, um, the debate about helmets, you know? Oh yeah. I, man, I, I'm all for it. I'm all for people wearing helmets. Um, I've actually thought about coming out with a company that makes ones that are easier to use that don't look like you're, you know, um, princess toadstool, you know, <laughs> while you're trying to rollerblade. <laughs> But what's crazy is, is, you know, until you have that head trauma, until you get knocked completely the fuck out or until you, you know, you deal with something where, I mean, my brother got into a car accident in 2006, I want to say it is. And, um, you know, he was a DUI accident, but he put his face through his radio or through his radio and turned his car into an accordion going 60 miles an hour on highway, us highway 60 and, and, um, you know, shit faced. And, um, he had been playing a drinking game with a couple of buddies and decided to come over to my house and just drop by and a visit, you know, and I get a call from the head trauma unit at six in the morning saying, we got your twin brother here. You know, he's in bad shape. Get down here. And pretty sad seeing your brother with his chin hanging open and his face fat as hell. And he's got his jaw broken in a couple of different places. And it's, he's still got the open wound on his chin from where his impact was. And, you know, he's asking me to, he's like, Mike, Mike, you got to get me out. And I'm like, dude, you're not going anywhere. He's like, I got to take a piss. And I look and I see a giant bag of pee on the side of the bed. It's like, dude, you got a catheter in, but I'm like, dude, is he dead? Like, what's going on with this guy? Is he a brain damage? You know, and those, those kind of head injuries change people for life, you know? Yeah. And, um, so am I opposed to like the helmet talk? No, absolutely not. I've hit my head so hard at MCC. I was, I was sure I was dead, but Ben Weiss pulled up on the, at the base of the stairs, like we got a bleeder. And that's all I kind of remember John Elliott holding my scalp together. And you know, it was weird to, we were, we were out shooting for the top amateurs of the year 2000 and I cracked my head open. And I mean, I think it's honestly, it's, it's up to that person, whether that's become, you know, a huge battle for you. I'm, I'm all for it. And I mean, it even comes down to the mask debate right now, which oh, God, yeah. I hate getting into fuck. Do I hate getting into that? Like this whole thing is so goddamn confusing. Like, well, do you want a pedophile or do you want a piece of shit for a president? You only get two choices. You, and then everybody, how about this? You guys want to, while we're at it, well, when we put one of these dickheads into office, why don't you guys all fight about whether you should wear a mask and then let's throw some civil unrest in there, you know? And this whole thing is so goddamn confusing to be alive this day and age. I'm just glad I'm sober for it, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, I was in treatment when COVID hit and like, it's so weird like it was the best thing for me personally to have happen because it (laughs) it made me think about like i i couldn't even think about using because i was so worried about my family that was just like it threw me in the perfect headspace so like it's obviously it's horrible what's going on but for me like it was like a blessing in disguise yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah when you come out and all the bars are closed and can't really go anywhere when you go to the grocery store there's like no food on the shelves and so you don't really go anywhere no toilet paper no toilet paper <laughs> yeah no toilet paper yeah it, it, and I, d- I didn't tell him how bad it was because I didn't know how triggering it would be when we would talk right. on the phone or like when I would visit. But I was at home freaking out because our two kids were coming home from school. I didn't know what was going to happen. I work in the hospital as a nurse. Oh. so I don't even know what's going to happen with my job. 
it was such a mess and then finally one night he's like you just gotta let it out and i let it out like it's scary going to the grocery store i don't know what's gonna happen with our kids in school and my job i don't know like if i get sick i work in the emergency room and gosh yeah so i was that's, like oh I mean, please don't come out you're a super strong woman for dealing with all that and oh Chris, absolutely. I, I, I commend you for actually you know going to treatment and getting that shit dealt with you know i mean it was it wasn't law uh legal issues that that brought you to your rock bottom well, that made you go to, no it, it was very close i had okay. a, i had a, a suicide attempt okay and, and so that I, happens. I was in the hospital for eight days before i went in Okay, um, but it, it, I like planned on. I had two. I had two shooters hidden in my jacket that I was gonna drink when I got home as like a congratulations for being sober for eight days or whatever. Like, <laughs> it was so weird. It's crazy how sick our minds have been, you know? Yeah, yeah. Looking yeah. back on it, it's like, dude, what was I thinking? But at the time, you're like, aha, like a mad scientist. But dude, the, the, the mindset that you have right now, there are people that relapse for way less. Like the, the positive like viewpoint that you have on no matter what happens, things are, things can be bad. Things can be great, but you're never going to be able to appreciate or make it through those things unless you have a sober mind. So like that's that, that is so hard for people to get to that point. So the what you're dealing with and being so positive at the same time is it's it's so nice to hear, dude. I I, I really <laughs> really appreciate that that you're going about it the way you are. Yeah, I mean inside I'm freaking out a little bit. I'm still you know nerve wracking, kind of a mess when it comes to that. Um, as an addict, obviously I deal with that every day. But I've been to so much therapy. Like um, there's this sweetheart of an angel therapist named Molly Bailey for the Minnesota trauma Institute who is God sent. And, um, this woman taught me how to actually have compassion, empathy. Cause I was just some hot headed cool. Ass. I mean, you couldn't tell me I wasn't cool. You know, yeah. <laughs> I thought I was the coolest shit. You coolest person you've ever met, you know? And she was like, well, yeah, like, you, you know, the way you think about things are kind of fucked up. And I'm like, what, what did this lady just say to me? You know, I'm in her parenting class. I'm like, dude, fuck this. She doesn't know what she's talking about. By the end of it. I mean, this person has taught me more about how to be, you know, have empathy, you know, things like that, that, and, and not only that, but have empathy for myself, like have compassion for myself. Yeah, I did some fucked up shit during, you know, active addiction, you know, wasn't there for my kids, you know, but I did, I'm doing all the things that I can do now to be an active part of their life on a daily basis. And I think for any addict struggling, the best thing I can tell you is I think one of the most important things is if it's mental illness, they have ways to treat it. You know, if it's, if it's addiction, because you know, you've had trauma in your life, there's ways to deal with it. And if there's, if there's something that's really fucking with you about just even the way the world is today, there's ways to deal with it. Being sober. Yeah, no, we'll never get, understand completely what's going on or why we only have these two choices as presidents, what's going to happen with COVID. But damn, if if they, they can teach you coping skills to deal with it, you know, and I mean, in between box breathing, even my therapist just tells me, can you feel your feet right now? And I'm like, what is this hippie talking about? The Grounding first time she techniques. told me that. <laughs> yeah. Yep, when yep. she first What's told me that, wall? I said, can, 
I was like, what is she talking about? Of course I can feel my fucking feet right now. Like, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then after a while, like you don't realize, like I even use this before I try a handrail. I don't want to do, you know, like, Hey man, can you feel your feet right now? Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, um, flexing each of your, like a muscle in your body and just every muscle in your body yeah. sometimes, you know, yeah. or squeezing your hands and letting go, squeezing your hands, yeah. and like just taking those sensories or like, um, yep. those senses and, and feeling something else that'll take you away from like, cause I used to be really hot headed, and, um, I wouldn't want to fight anybody. And, um, in jail, I got in three fights and, um, you know, you can get, um, felony assault of a, a vulnerable adult in jail if you fight somebody. And I got really fortunate and didn't, didn't catch any of those charges while I was in Wisconsin prison or jail. And, um, I'll tell you the truth. When I went to treatment, if anybody called me a bitch or a punk, we were fighting, you know? And, um, that's a really fucked up place to, to go fight somebody, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a lot of dudes in there that are looking to fight because they just want somebody to punch their ticket so they can get out of there. Cause they're there from their probation officer or their parole agent, you know, and yeah. you know, the, the lessons that sh- this woman taught me, Molly Bailey and this, this place, RSE men's program, if I wouldn't have learned those kind of coping skills, um, first having compassion, you don't know what anybody's going through, you know? So when people want to try and fight you and you're that dude that's ready to be their huckleberry, you know, some of those coping skills or, you know, the breathing techniques, those kind of things actually help. But at the time when you're a tough guy, you're not going to learn any of that, you know? And I snapped out of it and started realizing like, (laughs) I'm going to take this seriously. So now, I mean, I'm not the same hot-headed dude. Not saying I'm a, a punker, a punker bitch, but um, one of the funniest jokes that we had in treatment, because um, you know we, we we had a lot of good dudes that were in there, and a lot of good dudes I still stay in contact with because you know going through being vulnerable and talking to other adults about what you've been through in your life and you know what it is. There's the reasons why you're sad at the time. I, I mean talk to another man about why you're not feeling so happy at the time. It's tough to do. I mean yeah. for any male, and um you know, getting vulnerable and talking about that stuff is, it's pretty insane, but, um, some good jokes come out of it. And, um, <laughs> one of them, we would look at each other cross-eyed and say, get out of my bitch ass face. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of took away that stigma of, Hey, did you just call me a bitch? Yeah. I call myself a bitch. You know, So, I mean, I'm going to go to jail. No, I mean, if I do go to jail, I'm going to go there with a, a head on me knowing, man, I'm here for a reason. And I always think if, uh, if I ever do go to jail again, like I was for that six days, um, when the judge revoked my bond, it was, uh, I knew there was a reason I had to go there. And one of the reasons I knew in my mind and in my heart was that I didn't ever quit smoking cigarettes. And I was like, all right, well, that's one of the reasons I'm here. I'm going to quit smoking because I can't smoke in jail. And, um, if I'm here for 60 days, I'm going to make the best of it. And I'm going to quit smoking for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, I got out six days later, I still haven't had a cigarette ever since. And, uh, that was cool. But, uh, the main thing was, is I was in there in the quarantine cell with three other guys. And, um, they were going through it, you know, they're like, man, um, one of them was an alcoholic. Uh, one of them was a young kid and he was just a drug addict. And, uh, the other kid, um, just started getting drug charges because or getting uh, assault charges because him and his girlfriend would fight and he'd go beat up whatever guy she cheated on him with. So to each person I was able to offer out, you know, my advice and being sober and telling them, about R.S. Eden. Uh, one of them actually discharged from Polk County Jail and went to R.S. Eden and is there now. And I mean, I just feel like, uh, you know, if it's God's plan, because uh, I'm super spiritual. I grew oh, up okay. in, in, a, in a Catholic program um, and uh, it's called Transfiguration. And where, you know, where they guilt you into being religious, which is uh, honestly the worst approach. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and 
tell people who are Catholic, uh, try and heal yourself from Catholicism, but I'm actually healed, uh, <laughs> going through recovery from Catholicism, not in the way that the Catholic church is known for, but, um, the, <laughs> the stigma that's around guilting people into it, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I believe more now in God's grace and just knowing there's a higher power kind of, kind of what AA teaches, um, and NA, but I'm, I just know that there's a plan and, uh, I know that, I'm I'm here for a reason and I get the, I actually am blessed every day I wake up. So I try and just take that one day at a time seriously and try and do whatever I can to help another addict. Cause that's what helped me. If it weren't for the guys coming into the jail and coming into the treatment facility with the message of NA, I don't think I'd be sober today. So well, that's amazing, man. Yes, sir. And, um, I've actually kind of missed my, my final, final dinner here with my, my family. So I oh. gotta kind of, gotta kind of get going or else yes. <laughs> my mom made uh, fried chicken for me just cause I requested it. And now they're all looking out the window, like about to be done. So, all right, dude, well, thank you again so much. No problem, I, man. I, it's best a pleasure to meet you guys over you. the phone. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day I can meet you guys in person. Absolutely, man. Well, you stay yeah. safe. And again, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, if you guys ever want to go skating or something, let me know. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome, Chris. Hey, you guys have a great night, okay? You, you too, too, man. That was, man, I'm so glad because I, how many times have I been saying that, that, that like this underlying thing of addiction in the rollerblading community and nobody wanted to talk about it. Yeah, and I mean, I as an outsider, I saw a lot of it, you know, and it wasn't... <laughs> It was just mainly RTP where we'd see these people. And we were not even 21 at the time and seeing all these yeah. people so messed up on different drugs. And it's like, what in the crap is not going on? Not even RTP, though, like Street Fighter. Yeah. I guess I didn't we, see it as much there. It was I feel like RTP is one that really oh, is yeah. stuck in my head because of how like the heart. I could not believe these people are doing these hard drugs and the, the stories. And I mean, people would just laugh about it. And I'm not going to say we didn't laugh about some of the stories, yeah. but it's sad to think about like. And watching these people like level up, you know, do so well in rollerblading and their addiction just they brought them. I mean, they could have succeeded so far and some of their addictions just really took over. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think your crew wasn't. I mean, you guys didn't get hammered all the time. No, and not skate. Really. No, no. You, I think you were more of a I can't drink and skate until you started doing it here right, yeah, but yeah. like with your friends because i mean yeah that's and i wonder if there's any like correlation with how messed up somebody is and how many injuries they have and how bad because you feel looser you're not as alert and oh, you may sure. try things that you normally wouldn't try in rollerblading and then you get really messed up it, it's it, it all depends on the person like yeah there's i guess so. there's court like people um get in their head about how i'm drunk i'm gonna fall for sure if i try to skate and like, oh. you would hear them say that yeah. stuff and then yeah. and then there was other people who were like i sometimes the best skating i do is when i'm high or when i'm drunk and and those That's people what, would those skate are the really people good that, like, same with musicians like i can only write music yeah. when i'm under the influence and stuff like yeah. that but yeah it's interesting man i mean it's weird it's, but that, that conversation was absolutely awesome. I mean, cause those, him and Derek, like we, they, they got to skate with like the God of rollerblading. Like, do you remember hearing about Dustin Latimer? He was like everyone's top, at least top three, if yeah. not like. 
favorite skater for so long and we saw them like being able to hang out with them all the time and we were just like holy shit and like he was saying like being able to go on these tours and yeah just throwing absolute hammers we yeah i mean especially in minnesota i don't i don't know about other states but like we just thought that they were absolutely crushing it and to know that there was so much struggle along with yeah. that that you yeah. know to to hear him so positive so positive oh my gosh and to go to treatment for that long and to like make the decision on his own to do it yeah yeah that was that's and to be as positive like he could have went to jail for those six days and came out and been like fuck it if i'm just gonna keep going to jail for this i might as well use yeah and that happens all the time i i know <laughs> i mean i see people come through you know you hear these stories and it's like, well, if they're going to pull me over because they think I'm under the influence, I might as well be under the influence. Or if my family's going to accuse me of using all the time. I might as well just be using. It's like yeah. that, you know, people accuse someone of cheating, you know, well, I might as well go out and oh, sleep yeah, with someone yeah. else if they're going to accuse me of it anyway. So it's like that mindset of like, well, F it. But he, like he, like I said, he could have gone out after those six days and been like, well, if I'm this judge doesn't care if I even try and better myself, then screw What's it. The point? Yeah. What's the point? But for him to be like, nope, I'm going to quit smoking this time. You know, it's like, wow. Yeah, that's very impressive. Very, very. And like that was like that's I connected with so much of that because we talk about obviously mental health, how important that is. And like, yeah, and how there are correlations. And I just want to point out, like, it sounds like he was a I want I don't want to say closed minded to therapy, but very like eh. and for him, like these people that I meet so many people that are like, I don't want to go to therapy like it's not going to help and for some people i mean it can help it can really help yeah well i mean to have that cool guy persona yeah. like him and his brother are gorgeous individuals like and we would joke about that too why like, don't we have them in person then Whoa. i'm just teasing because then i'd look even uglier he had his last <laughs> dinner tonight so yeah yeah that was that I'm, I'm, I'm glad yeah that, that that did work out really good yeah well, I mean, last night you went to open mic and like you did an open mic for the first time in months. Mm -hmm. And how did it go? Yeah. Being, that, I mean, that was one of the places you used a lot. For sure. Yeah. And it was like the last place that I had like my probably my most major like manic like event, yeah. I would say yeah. is, is, you know, I would tell people all that night, like when they were like, you're you're quitting comedy for real and it was just like yep i'm an addict i'm an addict so yeah. i have to quit everything because i'm just addicted to everything and all this patronizing bullshit man and i don't miss that guy that patronizing chris oh he was the worst it was insane god it was it's insane. so it was weird like, to think. it was like your jekyll and mr Hyde. like the, yeah, i can yeah. now like i thought that i could see these two different sides of you but like the longer you're sober it's like wow there really was two different sides of you and like i hated myself for hating certain part like hating you at times because it's like i love him like crazy because we'd have those good moments but then like when you like recall these things it's like god it was literally like living with two different people and i i didn't know which one was gonna be here yeah well i mean it's they don't call them mind altering substances for no reason. Yeah. Like, yeah. and the more that you do it, the more that you're conditioned to think that you are like the, to your point, what you were talking about before, like you just condition yourself to think that you're this bad person. Yeah. And so you might as well lean into it. 
Yeah. And that's, I, I did that a lot. Yeah. So you did comedies mm-hmm. in a bar. In a bar. Yeah. In the bar. In the bar. I always say that that's like the first place I ever did real stand up. And yeah. it it was going to be the last place that I ever did real stand up. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was weird. It was weird being there. Obviously, COVID stuff makes it even weirder. Yeah. But got to see a bunch of people that I hadn't seen in a long time. And uh, yeah, I mean. Can we just do a PSA, public service (laughs) announcement? I'm just going to say it then. (laughs) If you know someone's in active recovery, you do not put a beverage or their DOC in front of them and try and make it a joke. Cause it's not funny. Yeah. I keep trying to like anybody who's listened to this show knows that like, I'm not, I don't like cast stones. Like I try to look at things from all sides. And the only thing that I can come up with is like as comics, we joke about the darkest shit because it like helps us heal. But sometimes it goes too far. Yeah. And yeah, this comic, uh, I was talking with James cause he came and did the podcast mm-hmm. and, um, we were talking and this comic brought a pitcher of beer over and like put it on the table in between James and I. And I thought he was just like resting it. And then he started to slide it over to me and I was like, okay, I thought he was going to like pull it away last second. Like and be like, ah, I'm just kidding. Because that, that type of shit I can be, get on board with. Be as dark as you want. But then for some reason, they took it off of the table and put it on top of my hands and like was trying to get me to hold it. Like, and he had just heard me like before the mic had started talking to another comic about addiction and like how the podcast is going well and this person has to be on our podcast and it's like uh, i mean that's so disrespectful yeah like i get that like i'm a self-deprecating dude and like i don't command respect but like that is the only time that i can think of where like you don't respect me at all like if that's what you're doing yeah yeah and yeah i just i ended up blocking them on facebook and I'm just going to not deal with it. Like, so just, I'm going to say PSA again. Well, here I'll say this. You don't think that shit like that is going to happen because it seems like that's the shit that happens in the movies or like in a bad, like dare ad. Like if you're in recovery, you don't think that can happen to you. Yeah. You don't think that it's going to be that like apparent or like that forced on you. And apparently it happens. So like, be an asshole like if that type of shit is coming your way don't be afraid to get more angry than than they think is appropriate because it's obviously the only because i was just shocked i didn't know i didn't know that that shit happens i didn't know that that i would never have guessed that you know what i mean i think even when we were you know you know drinking and all that if someone told us they were in recovery, we never would force drinking on them. Like there was someone that would kind of be in our circle when we would drink. Mm-hmm. And that person has had alcohol issues happen. 
and I don't know if they don't drink for legal issues. It doesn't really matter oh, why oh, they don't drink. But we would never be like, come on, take a shot with us. Do you want a beer? They would sit there and they drink sodas and we didn't say anything yeah. about it. That's that's and that was the other thing that was so weird because I can't even imagine like I, a time that we yeah, I, yeah well no not not just a time that we I, I don't know the mindset that you would need to have to put it in someone's face something traumatic yeah you know what I mean because it it doesn't apply just to substances no I get what you're saying like. A traumatic event like let me just put this in your face so you can keep replaying it over and yeah. over and over again yeah yeah like if someone could videotape that traumatic event that happened to you and you can pull it up on your camera and just put it in their face exactly yeah like that's really shitty that's, there that's a good or gooder way a, it is a good it's a gooder way. way a better way to put it like someone that's kind of went through therapy let's say treatment Mm-hmm. therapy and they finally feel like they've kind of worked on it i mean it's always with trauma you're always kind of working through that because sure. you're always going to have triggers to rework through the trauma i'm at a good place now someone brings a phone up to my face and they're showing me some traumatic event i was a part of it's going to re-trigger that your brain you almost go in that fight and flight again yeah and i'm sure feeling that cold glass under your hand there was some it gotta have been well some, not just a glass a pitcher yeah like that is it it's so weird it is really weird yeah yeah so yeah just like deer in the headlights because luckily james is like what the fuck are you doing like yeah knock it off but uh, i mean we uh he and i talked about it on the way home we were just like i don't we didn't get it we didn't yeah and and then <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean it's just so weird I don't know how else to say it. It's so odd. Well, I mean, at least your first night back and something that, I mean, that's pretty abrasive happened. Now you're going to be like, cool, kind of. Now you're going to be like, well, hopefully, I don't know. I don't can't imagine. I mean, you're so vocal about your recovery and treatment and all that. Yeah. I, it's just still, I'm so like what I, that's why I said this person must not have known you went to treatment. And you're like, no, I was talking about it with him. <laughs> and it's like, well, what the fuck then? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, and it makes me think too like we should always be aware of our surroundings and like now I mean obviously it's not going to happen now but like when we were drinking like to be aware of our surroundings like n- like not you know just people in general when you are hanging out with people be aware of your surroundings and people might not drink because they don't want to drink yeah. or they might be in recovery and you don't know um i'm just vocal i'm obviously not in recovery but i choose to be sober because i prefer myself as a sober person and i like the environment that we have created i don't look down on people when i went to that wedding uh last weekend no one pushed it on me everyone drank around me they were fine and i just drank soda and it wasn't like a weird thing yeah and so just don't make it a weird thing yeah. It's not like we're sitting around a ton of people doing meth and I'm not doing meth and they're like, well, why aren't you doing meth? Like it's, it's a substance. Yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, that's a, that is an interesting thing. Like people get, uh, a little, um, n- like not defensive, but like just a, a little on guard because they're worried that people like you and I are, are judging, judging them. And I'm not. Yeah. No, we just want to be treated. I like just want to be treated. Else. Yeah. Yeah. And I like having that, like I talked on the last episode, you can go back and listen to the last episode if you want, where I like having that clear mind where I feel like I am alert 
and my reflexes are really well and I know that my kids are taken care of. Um, And sometimes I would not like my people around me were peer pressuring me, but I felt like I had to drink because like I went to adult prom and I drink a lot. Like there was places where I'd be like, yeah, everyone around me is drinking a lot and they're having a lot of fun. I should probably drink because you almost feel like you're making other people uncomfortable. But it got to the point where I became the DD a lot because I wanted to come home and be with the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be home. I didn't want to pass out at someone's house. Like I'm 30. Yeah. I just want to be at my house. So it became that where, and then when you, your addiction was getting worse, it's like, I just wanted to be sober. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously we've talked about it yeah, before. We but talked about it on other episodes. Sorry for, for repeating this. No, no, no. That's okay. Cause, Cause I'm sure there's going to be new listeners, yeah. people who haven't heard that. So. And yeah. I don't judge, like I said, I didn't judge anyone at any, any event. If they're drinking our friends, we still have friends that drink. Yeah. I'm, we're going to be around, probably be around it. And I'm not judging you. I'm not looking down on you. Yeah. Well, I, like I have friends that work at breweries and I'm not like calling them drug dealers or like being fucking yeah. weird about it. Yeah. 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 Well. One addiction we're trying to k- k- kick right now is our sweet addiction. Oof. We both have gone down a bad, so bad. path <laughs> and I stepped on the scale today and I was like, that's enough. That's enough. Because I quit act. for a long time, and then the selling of the house threw me down a spiral of yeah. I'm just gonna feed. Like I can't control the house stuff, but I can control what I put in my mouth. And I almost go the opposite way. I either go one way or the other, where I get obsessed with what I am eating, or I just don't give a fuck. And I went yeah. way over here. Now I need to come just in the middle. Yeah. Not be super like, oh, I can't eat this. This is this, this, this. Like just be like, okay, I'm gonna be content and eat healthier foods. And not stuff myself till I feel like I'm going to throw up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, same time next week. I'll be here. I live here. That was a joke because that's the dude absolutely thing. Oh. It's okay. I don't I don't listen to that. I, no, I right. heard too many weird things in those shows. So. Um. Well, I love you. I love you. You're wonderful. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for all of the work that you've been doing around the house, getting things ready and managing all this shit. It's a nightmare. You know, one day at a time. One day at a time. That is what they say. That is what they say. All right. You know what else they say? Then they say, and with with that, that, we we will will pass. pass.